Welcome everyone, I'm Emma Norris, the Deputy Director at the Institute for Government and we're here to launch our 10th edition of our annual look at the size, shape and state of the civil service, Whitehall Monitor 2023. Now it was a turbulent year in 2022, we had no fewer than three Prime Ministers, four Chancellors and a record-breaking number of ministerial resignations as I'm sure you saw on the IFG charts. And we had the death of the UK's longest serving monarch, war in Europe, a cost of living crisis, public services under strain, and we're still recovering from the pandemic. Now, in Whitehall Monitor, we capture the impact of all this on the civil service, on the civil service performance, on its relationships with ministers and civil servants, and on what this has all meant for the effective running of government. Now, in theory, 2023 is supposed to be a more stable year, and I think it definitely feels at the moment, at least some of the time, that there's a calmer pace in Westminster, calm being a relative term, but there does remain a sense of crisis, of course, in the cost of living, in the widespread strikes, and in the continuing mess on ethics and standards in government, with the UK today, for instance, plummeting down Transparency International's Corruption Perceptions Index to our lowest rating in 12 years. Now, the civil service is really at the centre of all of this, with a workforce that is also struggling with morale, facing pay cuts, industrial action, and with record levels of turnover, as Reese will talk us through. It's facing tight budgets um, and lots of difficult choices ahead and questions about its own leadership. And this is at a time when the civil service needs to take on really deep, long-term policy challenges, but politicians' eyes are focused on the next 18 months ahead of an impending general election. Now, Whitehall Monitor paints a picture of the civil service at this particular difficult moment in time, setting out what the events of 2022 mean for the civil service, um, how it could change for the better both this year and beyond. And we are very lucky to have an absolutely fantastic panel with us here today. And we're going to start with the IFG's own Rhys Klein, who's the lead author of today's Whitehall Monitor. He'll give us an overview of some of the biggest message messages coming out of today's report. Then we're going to be discussing what we've heard with Dame Una O'Brien, former Permanent Secretary at the Department of Health, Sally Warren, and current Director of Policy at the King's Fund, and Chris Smith, the Whitehall editor at The Times. I'm going to make sure that I leave at least 20 minutes um, at the end of the discussion for audience questions. Um, if you're watching online, then you can start sending in questions anytime from now using Slido, so please do so. If you're here in person, it will be the standard, put your hands up. Um, if you're tweeting, then please use the hashtag IFGWM23. With no further ado, Reese, over to you. Thank you, Emma. Yeah, so... Uh as Emma just said, this year's report charts the uh, impact of the political turmoil last year on the work of the civil service and the running of government. And uh, with 37 ministerial resignations outside reshuffles and 66 cabinet appointments last year, which is more than double any year since the 90s and probably a lot longer, uh, that in a, you know, unavoidably led to disruption, uncertainty, delay, and U-turns on policy, whether on social care, planning, onshore wind, online harms, health inequalities, and much more. And set against that context, we identified two big challenges that the civil service faces going into 2023. The first is managing tight departmental budgets. So the relatively generous allocations of the 2021 spending review, as you can see from this chart, were really heavily front-loaded on this financial year and have since been squeezed by cost pressures, particularly on pay. In general, departments will find there's no new money beyond this year. 
And the situation is particularly tough for administration budgets used by departments to pay civil servants, resource operations, and so on. These are lower now than they were a decade ago, and they're set to be cut by a further 8% over the next two years. And within those are an implied forecast for an even uh, more striking 25% cut in the pay bill. And that was made last year when the 91,000 uh, headcount target for cuts was still in place. Since then, the growth of the civil service has slowed and the target has been dropped. But the, budget, the budgets nevertheless remain in place. So this means the departments are not off the hook from really difficult decisions about how to spend less on the civil service with implications for headcount, pay, property, and more. This is even more difficult in the context of overstretched and in-demand public services and an expanding portfolio of major projects to deliver that's becoming more expensive and more risky as it grows. The second big challenge that we identify is around managing the workforce, as Emma hinted at in the introduction. We know that morale is getting worse, has been for two years now, bucking a long-term positive trend. And a contributing factor for that, as you'd expect, is dissatisfaction with pay. As across the economy, pay in real terms fell starkly last year. Um, but this comes after real terms cuts of between 12% of the most junior grades and 23% of the most senior grades since 2010. So this record makes pay restraint now more difficult as we uh, are seeing with the planned strike tomorrow. Um, and the 2% pay award in particular is a problem because it is lower uh, than those agreed so far in the wider public sector where we've seen 4 and 5% awards and it's lower than the private sector where we've seen awards of over 6%. The civil service is struggling with record high levels of churn, of turnover, highest now than it has been in at least a decade and uncompetitive pay will only contribute to that uh, difficulty. So that context makes government reform even more important. And overall, we've seen a, a momentum lost from the government's reform agenda last year, although progress has been made in some areas. For example, the government is slowly turning the tide on the increasing concentration of officials in London, relocating civil servants via the Places for Growth programme, although there's a long way to go. We're also seeing uh, improvements in the training and development offer for civil servants through the work of the Government Skills and Curriculum Unit. And we're seeing certain high priority skills spreading around the workforce, particularly on digital. Um, the long-term trend in the civil service becoming more representative of society continues, although ethnic minority representation among the senior civil service got worse last year for the first time in a while. And in the report, we analyse the new diversity and inclusion strategy and identify uh, the need for the government to avoid complacency on representation, to go further on socioeconomic diversity, and also uh, on the importance of inclusion to the diversity of thought for which the government is aiming. We argue that the government also needs to prioritise getting to grips with the push to become more decentralised. Varying levels of progress have been made on the systems reforms included in the levelling up white paper last year, but even so, these don't go far enough. It's a long-term trend towards decentralisation that will, you know, it won't go anywhere regardless of who leads the next election. We see heightened demands for information from government carrying on after the pandemic, and with them, worrying trends in transparency. We see that in FOI requests being responded to on time and in parliamentary <coughs> questions, for example. Um, and uh, on policy making, 
we argue that the government should prioritise spreading best practice methods being championed in political parts of the civil service, whether on citizen participation, uh, evaluation and the use of multidisciplinary teams, for example. And lastly, the last thing I'll pick up on is that we argue the events of last year, the turbulence, demonstrate uh, and strengthen the case for giving a clearer stewardship function for the civil service. Political instability is an integral, sometimes unavoidable, even sometimes desirable part of our democracy. But nevertheless, the civil service needs to be able to maintain the capabilities of departments, safeguard the provision of long-term advice to ministers, even amid short-term uncertainty. And we contend that that should form the bedrock of a new stewardship responsibility for the civil service in the form of a new statutory footing for the institution. Thank you very much. Brilliant. Thank you, Rhys. A huge amount for us to get through there, and I want to come back to that stewardship point. Um, I think for me, one of the most striking, if unsurprising, slides is on the state of civil service morale and the associated enormous levels of churn that the civil service is experiencing at the moment. Una, what are the risks of poor morale? This has got to be an enormous concern for the leadership of the civil service. And what can be done to strengthen morale and staff engagement over the next mm. year? Well, well, thanks, Emma, and also thanks, Therese, for that um, analysis. I've, I've read the report from cover to cover, and I commend it very highly. It's a tour de force, and you've done an outstanding job in bringing together um, material from so many different sources. I, I really do uh, applaud you for that. And so there's no denying uh, the picture that you've brought before us about morale. We can, those of us who are in contact with people in the civil service who are writing about it, thinking about it. People listening online today who are across all government departments know that morale's taken a serious knock for all the reasons that Rhys um, has identified. And perhaps the lowest point of all for a certain cross-section of civil servants was the, the treatment of Tom Scholar back in, in the autumn. And that, that really did have um, a sort of ramifications, I think, across the whole of the civil service for, for reasons to do with being able to speak truth onto power. So what can be done, leadership is very important um, as we look into a different year in 2023. I really you know, expect that leaders are now um, in teams across the country, across departments, are starting to think about how to set direction how to give clarity to their teams when change is coming, the earlier that people know what's going to happen, the better that helps to address personal uncertainty. And I think we need leaders to put their arms around the teams and help them remind them about the importance and the purpose of the work that they do. Because if there's one thing I know is enduring about the civil service and civil servants is they care passionately about the work that they do and the contribution it makes to the citizens of the country. So reigniting that connection to purpose, mm -hmm. I think, is going to really help to, to build, build back the strength of morale against all of these many practical difficulties. And how much can civil service leaders do on that front? And how much is morale really dictated by you know, the decisions, the behaviours, the impulses of ministers? They can do a lot, but you know it is a partnership. Mm -hmm. um, I can only speak for, for the civil service. We, we've, We've taken a different step. We've got a fresh prime minister. He's setting a new direction. Um, uh, values really matter to civil servants. Um, integrity being one of the central values. Um, so it has to be a partnership between ministers and civil servants in how, how they um, 
function together. But it's also worth remembering, and I think your report shows very clearly, vast numbers of civil servants don't in interact with ministers at all. They're doing very important operational jobs extremely well. And um, they're not affected by the sort of ups and downs of what's happening in Whitehall any more than the general citizenry are. So um, I, th I think we have to keep that in proportion. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. I think one of the, the rays of light, if you like, in the report is the progress being made by the government's skills and curriculum unit and what it's doing to try and improve the training and development of civil servants. I mean, what do you think is most important in that space? What should the government's priorities be when it comes to developing the civil service? Um, mm. Well, thank goodness that the Government Skills and Curriculum Unit is now in place. Um, there's been a big dip over the last decade in pulling away from training, development and so on. Uh, we've also now got the uh, Leadership College for the Civil Service at work. We've got um, some new initiatives on uh, training and development for all grades across the civil service. So I think that's what makes the jobs really, really attractive. You can come and join the civil service at a number of different levels and you can improve your skills, broaden your experience. The Major Projects Leadership Academy is a huge success um, and I'm delighted to see that, that a new contract's been established for, with the business school in Oxford for a next phase. So but skills development, capability, but also critically um, helping leaders to manage difficult situations and to lead and empower their teams. This is important investment and it's encouraging in your report to see that that's really sort of coming back onto the scene. And then one last question for you. you know, I want to talk about integrity and ethics back in the news again at the moment. How should we think about the civil services approach to ethics and integrity? And what do you think, for instance, the future of the civil service code should be? Mm. Well, it was interesting. I, I was talking to Rhys earlier saying, well, how can we gather evidence about the way in which the civil service code is translated into practice? I mean, it sits there. We've got the four, the four great tenets of it, honesty, impartiality, integrity, and objectivity. But how do we know... Um, what meaning that has for civil servants? How can we track the impact of that on their work? And I think there's definitely scope for research on that. In my day, I'm not sure if it's still the case, um, we were asked about the civil service code in the employee uh, staff survey, but that was really the only evidence that was collected. So I think it's absolutely in the DNA of the civil service that those four values shape the way um, we work, they work. We need much more evidence about how it's working in practice and what needs to be done uh, to, to really make sure those values are fit for, for purpose for the next, the next era. Brilliant. Thank you, Una. Um, Sally, I wanted to come to you now. Um, I think there are some similarities in the workforce problems that Reese has talked through in the civil service and those that the government's facing in the NHS, whether it's you know, dissatisfaction with pay, increasing you know, um, instances of industrial action, high levels of turnover, poor morale. Um, what do you think the similarities are between kind of the civil service and the NHS on morale issues? And where do you think actually um, there are unique challenges in the civil service? Uh, great question. Um, so where are the similarities? I, I, I think you've, you've 
touched on some of them already. So you have a workforce that is strongly values led whatever role people are doing in the nhs they're doing it because they care passionately about the nhs as an institution and want to deliver high quality care for, for people be it in the hospital be it in their gp surgery or in their own home so you've got a very strong value and passion led um uh, uh, group of staff um you also have a group of staff who for the last decade or so have had pay constraints have found terms and conditions in the broadest sense um really reduce. So actually some of the most powerful um, anecdotes I always, when I speak to staff, it's, yes, it's pay, but it's also, it's things like, I've got no locker to put my bag in when I come to work. Mm -hmm. So do you know what? Things get stolen. Um, I'm required to work a sort of an overnight shift and there's nowhere for me to have hot food in the middle of the night so I can't eat properly and therefore I'm not as healthy as I could be. So it's those kind of things that don't cost a lot of money. It's, you know, we don't actually have a chair at our desk and we have to sit on a bin. All of that kind of stuff. You think, this is, this is our NHS we're talking about. You don't think that the kind of surgeon walking in the room has just sat on a bin to kind of check your notes, but he has. Or they've wasted 26 minutes logging into their IT systems, which I'm not making up that time. That is the time the doctors tell me it takes uh, to, to log in. So I think there's a whole set of things around terms and conditions where, again, that feels similar to the civil service. There'll be different examples of it, but it's not pay. It's the broadest sense of working. Yeah. Um, where I think that there's difference is there's something for me about the there's a very direct moral hazard or moral injury that NHS staff feel that um, that I think civil servants will feel it at, at a kind of a certain level in that we're making choices mm. about which policy we're prioritizing what policies get reform which policies get money but actually we've got staff who are kind of walking into an A&E and determining who's getting seen next who isn't getting seen who's having their operation today who isn't so that the the kind of impact long term on your resilience when you're doing that day in day out mm -hmm. is really difficult healthcare staff are used to doing that in a crisis but actually they've now had a crisis for a very long period of time mm -hmm. so that kind of the constant um that constant impact i think does mean there's a real burnout sense that is it's quite different in the nhs and social care uh, than in the civil service that makes a lot of sense i mean if we're thinking about the similarities what do you think the civil service leadership's approach to managing the civil service workforce should be this year i mean you've talked a bit about the things they can do beyond pay are there other things you think that other levers they can pull that could help change the direction on some of those charts yeah so i, I think it's really important when we think about morale uh, of the civil service and kind of civil service engagement is that there's a risk that we see it as one kind of one thing mm -hmm. or kind of lots of different departments and it's the same in the nhs we think it's one thing and it's not there will be huge variation that sits behind those morale and uh, employee engagement figures and that's because leaders are leading in, a diff in different ways and they're finding ways to help their teams feel a connection to each other and support each other even if they're doing extremely challenging work they're working for ministers they might have a difficult relationship with or a great relationship because you know great relationship with ministers can also cause you an awful lot of work <laughs> difficult relationships cause you different challenges um, so i think for me there's definitely a how do you create a space where your teams feel psychologically safe to say actually i need some help where your colleagues notice somebody needs some help where you're able to um, help shape ideas so you're confident about the advice that's going to ministers you're confident that it's deliverable and some of that is just really small things it's not uh, about kind of a pay settlement obviously that's the bigger context but it's about how are you communicating with your team how are you structuring team time how are you recognizing and rewarding people doing a tough job or a good job um, all of that kind of 
that small stuff can just really help people feel a connection to a team, even if they are feeling a broader sense of slight disillusionment mm -hmm. with the overall kind of role of the civil service at this point, or the value that they might think the civil service is held by the public. Yeah. No, I think that small stuff matters point is a really important one for us to capture. I think one of the other really big themes in the report and of course for the kind of public sector in general this year is tight budgets and programme budgets, you know, hugely squeezed by inflation, not set to rise beyond this financial year. Admin budgets are going to be cut even further. I mean, how should the civil service in practice go about managing such tight budgets? And what does that mean for, for the workforce, for public services and indeed for major projects? Yeah, I think this is a real challenge because this isn't a kind of one-off tightening of budgets. This is kind of continuing for many years. So there's no low-hanging fruit anymore. And, you know, my first thought, the answer was, you know, you need to kind of stop doing some things completely and just mm -hmm. focus on absolute must-dos. But we've, we've been there before, so the stuff that's left now is pretty much must-dos. So I think, for me, it... It's about driving innovation, actually. So this isn't about how can we carry on doing the same with a little bit less. This is actually we're going to have to think differently about how do you deliver services, how do you have relationships with external partners, with your stakeholders in a way that helps you deliver your services, helps you have the insight you need to be able to provide good advice, but perhaps in a different model. So it, whatever you think might happen at the next election, there's not suddenly going to be kind of all the money for everything we ever want to do. So really thinking innovation in how we do policy making and mm -hmm. how we work with stakeholders uh, I think is the, the only way to really think carefully about programme working. The other bit on major projects particularly and, and obviously Una talked about the major projects leadership academy which um, I did several years ago. I think there is for me a real point about how good are we at sharing insight about how to lead major projects? Because actually, where, are the, where do the same or similar risks materialise mm -hmm. uh, across what look like different types of projects? Um, and I remember in, in that Leadership Academy, the kind of key bit right early on was everybody saying, you all think your project is unique. It absolutely isn't. The same risk and issues appear. You might think that this programme to reform social care is nothing like building a tunnel from a project management point of view, mm -hmm. it quite often is. So that kind of real sense of how can you make sure we're sharing learning from across different sectors, across different types of projects, I think would really, really help. And some of that, I will kind of say, we can be quite precious mm -hmm. as civil servants. We can be like, oh no, we're, you know, this is, this is a special or different project you just don't understand, as opposed to kind of going, okay, let's lean into this and understand what I can learn from mm -hmm. your experience. How can I um, use your experience to help me avoid or mitigate the similar risk. Brilliant, thank you. And then the last thing I wanted to talk about was kind of long-term policy making, I suppose. And I think one of the consequences of all the political instability and uncertainty we've seen in the last year has been huge delays to, to long-term policy making, like an inability to address the things that really matter in the long term. And social care is obviously the prime example that people use in this space. I mean, what do you think the specific role of the civil service should be in providing some of that continuity on the long-term issues like social care that really need attention? Yeah, so I think this is a real challenge because it's both um, delay but also for some issues in social care and sort of health and health inequalities more broadly it was also kind of u-turn after u-turn after u-turn it was kind of I don't know which direction we're going anymore because we've kind of done one the other so it's been quite um quite challenging in that regard I think and this might come back to some of the points about kind of stewardship. So for me, there is something about making sure that an organisation understands the sectors it's responsible enough to be able to understand the short, medium and long term challenges. So if I speak quite frankly about social care, 
um, probably five or six years ago, the department had, Department of Health and Social Care, had really reduced its social care policy function to a really small number of people, given the size of the sector. It then, it, that meant to enter the pandemic with a really small team. It massively increased that during the pandemic, but they were then learning about the sector as they were dealing with a crisis. So there is, for me, a point about saying, when you are responsible for sectors that are part of some some part of national critical infrastructure, really. How do you make sure you've got the insight, the relationships to be able to understand the immediate pressures, but also be able to look ahead and see? I mean, the one thing I will say on social care is, since about 2006, the policy advice has been there is a, there's a burning issue about when the, when the baby boomers start to enter the, the, a, the social care system, you need to fix this now, ministers. And then in 2008, you say there's a burning issue, you need to fix it now. And then in 22, so the fact that this was a, an issue that needed attention before the increased demand hit it, that has been spoken of regularly and there has been policy advice about that regularly, both within government and externally, but yet government has still kind of dodged making the big decisions yeah. or in the case here, making the decision and then not implementing it. Yeah. It's ten tended to be the, the model. Yeah. I want to come back to that point on, you know, safeguarding capability and capacity as one of the long-term kind of roles of the civil service. Chris, I want to um, come to you now. Uh, one of the other really striking slides that Reese had was on uh, just the <coughs> level of ministerial turnover that we saw last year, 10 secretaries of state um, for education in the last 13 years, but five of those in the last 12 months. Um, how has the political uh, turmoil that we saw in 2022 affected the civil service and I guess I'm thinking, yeah, particularly of the kind of the impact of that uncertainty on policy. Well, I think it must have had a, a, a huge impact. I mean, if you are, if your job is to make policy and implement it, if that policy keeps changing every few months and you keep marching off in different directions, or if indeed the government's too busy fighting each other to actually make any major decisions on big things, that's going to be quite demoralising. If you think what the work I'm doing today is probably almost certainly going to be wasted. I mean, it's interesting in the in the slide of. Morale. I mean, perhaps some of the smaller departments or those in which the policy is less contentious and is, there is more continuity, perhaps got better on morale because they were just getting, getting on with their job underneath that mm -hmm. political mm -hmm. turmoil. But certainly, if there is no sense of direction from the top of government, that is inevitably destabilising uh, and demoralising. And I think, you know, there is now a sense of... Calm is obviously the cliche, and I think a sort of sense of what this government wants to prioritise. Mm -hmm. Now, it may be that you, if you're working in an area where it's clearly not interested, social care, for example, that also might be quite demoralising. But if you're working in those areas that is trying to do something, at least for the next year, that perhaps gives some sense of you know everyone knows what their job is. Although, of course, as we get closer to election, that you know most people think that this government is going to lose, and you start getting to question of well, you know, am I working on something that the next government? is going to come in and undo. So we may have quite a small window of actual stability and, and, and direction, and we'll see what that does to morale overall. And then continuing on the morale theme, I wanted to talk about the relationship between civil servants and ministers. Um, obviously, under huge strain last year, um, Sunak's, um, I think, definitely tried to take a bit of a, of a different tone, but we've still got investigations into Dominic Raab, you know, kind of allegations around Gavin Williamson, questions and indeed briefings on uh, Braverman's reappointment at the Home Office. I mean, what would you say the state of the relationship between the civil service and ministers is right now? And what kind of 
impact does that have on the ability of the civil well, service to run well? Right now, it's probably better than it was last year, <laughs> but that is not saying a great deal. Um, I mean, I think, you know, we, Sally was talking about the contrast with the NHS. One of the strange contrasts is that however much the government may not want to give the NHS ever more money, keep turning down their pay rises, do all these other things, they're always very careful to praise the staff who work in the NHS and say how marvellous they are, whereas with the civil service, certainly last year, they took every opportunity to, ha to have a pop at them and say, get off your, get off your peloton and get back to the office, you, you lazy so-and-sos, which seems, obviously it's great for us, we can, we, we can we, it makes a great source of stories, but it seems a strange uh, choice when, you know, praise is, is free, which, you know, uh, very few things are at the moment. Although, Chris, arguably, NHS managers is, some, is a group of people that politicians are quite happy to take a pop at. That's which true. might be more akin that's, to that's true. That's but, yeah. true. Um, but you know, the, I think last year there was both there was both that where there was a deliberate attempt to sort of um, pick a fight and also a sense of clearly under the Boris Johnson government the civil service became embroiled in in the Partygate affair um, mm -hmm. and as as Rhys says in the reports that clearly damaged perceptions of the civil service damaged perceptions of the cabinet secretary and the way that was handled, you know, left a sort of pretty bad taste in a lot of people's mouth. Many of them working within the civil service to say, I don't want to be tarred with that brush. And I think, you know, obviously Rishi Sunak has come in, said, you know, integrity is, is important to me. What he's finding is the danger of that, a bit like back to basics in the 1990s. It then means anything looks a little bit dodgy, gets tied to him personally to say, oh, well, are you actually living up? to that promise and then the temptation is often politically to sort of pass the buck to the civil service and say well they didn't tell us they should have done this process isn't mm -hmm. working rather than say you know accept political fault and I think we're starting to see a little bit of that in what we see with Nadine Zahawi and what we're starting to see yeah. with, with Dominic Raab which I think is quite a long way to, to run yet. And you mentioned uh, the Cabinet Secretary. We haven't talked about Simon Case yet. And the FT today is asking whether he can survive in his role. And do you think he can? And if he has a chance of doing so, what does he need to get done in the next couple of months? Well, I think he can, if only in the sense that I've spent so long listening to people saying he can't last for very long, that he's already outlasted most yeah. you know, expectations. And, I mean, it is extraordinary the extent to which, you know, people who work with him are dissatisfied. Um, you know, some for good reasons, some perhaps for less so, but you do keep hearing the same criticisms again and again about, you know, being a courtier, not standing up for the civil service enough, you know, seeing themselves as sort of fixer for ministers rather than the guardian of uh, the civil service code. And of course, you know, to be fair to him, he's had a very difficult period to go through, you know, with both with the pandemic and the political turmoil mm -hmm. that has come last year. But clearly, you know, he didn't cover himself in glory over Partygate, both with his own involvement, the sort of non-apology apology that he sent out afterwards, and then can we just not talk about this again in response to that, whereas I think some kind of reckoning with that would have gone a long way towards, um, you know, addressing some of those concerns. And, you know, it, it, it's quite striking. You know, we are here talking about the state of the civil service. You know, where are the, the, the you know, civil servants? You know, I'm sure Simon Case has got a packed diary, but, you know, he, he doesn't come out and do events like this. He doesn't put his case, he doesn't defend the civil service. I think he's done, what, one speech, maybe two slightly disastrous committee hearings since, since, since taking over. And I think people notice when their boss is invisible and all they hear about it is, is criticism from people who are dissatisfied with his performance and I think a little bit of visibility getting on the front foot and saying okay this is what I'm doing and this is you know what we're trying to achieve together would probably be quite helpful. 
Simon, if you're watching, you're welcome to do a speech at IFG anytime. Um, Reese, over to you now. So um, I wanted to ask about pay. Uh, we've always come up in every panelist's comments. Uh, Sally talked a bit about the similarities and differences between civil servants and the NHS workforce. What, what's unique about civil service pay compared to the wider public sector and what kind of challenges does that create? So I, firstly, in terms of process, there's, a, there's an interesting difference. So the senior civil service has a pay review body, uh, similar to how much of the wider public sector has. Um, uh, but the rest of the civil service, the vast majority of the civil service do not have pay review body. You have a process by which officials at the centre of government advise ministers to set pay remit guidance that departments must then follow um, with some flexibility. So firstly, you have a different process, arguably with a little bit less sort of outside input into it. Um, and one thing that it's sort of interesting result of that is that we do tend to see comparatively low pay awards for civil service. And those are then reflected also in senior civil service pay awards because they very sensibly don't want to pay the senior civil servants much more than the junior civil servants in their percentage award uh, increases. Um, so in process terms, there's a difference. And then as I noted at the start, there's a particular story about this year, 2% being lower than where we've seen awards in the wider public sector. And I totally agree uh, with um, Sally and uh, Una's comments about the wider uh, factors affecting morale. But I do think it's also important that we sort of recognise the reality this year of the trade-offs in pay restraint, in that you know, ministers are putting forward their case of, of, of using pay restraint in, across the wider public sector amid the context of the weakening fiscal outlook. But you know, recent IFG research has found at the top end of the civil service that's making recruitment much harder. Mm -hmm. You know, getting outside people in, that is really causing problems. And then at the more junior ranks, we're seeing, as we saw evidence last autumn, civil servants struggling with really difficult financial difficulties amid the cost of living crisis. Mm -hmm. And naturally, that is going to um, play into their thinking about, you know, should they be looking for equivalent jobs in other parts of the public sector, or in the private sector? And it just sort of it creates another factor for that churn. Brilliant. Thanks, Rhys. Um, I'm going to go out to the audience for questions very soon, but there's one question I wanted to put to the whole panel. This is really building on um, what we were talking about, Sally, on long-termism. One of you know, the big themes of Whitehall Monitor this year is the need for the civil service to provide long-term policy advice and to play that broader stewardship role. Um, do you all think that, one, there is a problem to be addressed on this front, um, that the civil service challenges with the struggles with the longer term, if you like, and then how do you think that the civil service should go about dealing with that in the context of an impending general election? Um, Una, I'm going to come yeah. to you first. Well, it has always been a bit of a conundrum because um, ever since the Thatcher and the, the concept of the civil service working for the government of the day, this has posed questions back into the civil service about, well, is our responsibility simply for this uh, particular parliament or is it for something enduring and, and beyond that? And uh, I think it's absolutely essential that we regard um, the civil service as part of the critical infrastructure, that phrase Sally used, of the country, and also be much clearer about our responsibilities for, for the long term. And I very much like some of the concepts you're talking about in the report about stewardship and about looking at some of the reforms in New Zealand. So um, it's true that there are many policy options put to ministers across the board and that, that set out the longer term implications of acting or not acting. 
But what's really missing is a sort of way of, of bringing this together at the centre. Mm. Um, we were very much uh, encouraged by Mark, Sir Mark Walput and Jeremy Hayward this time 10 years ago to set up a horizon scanning unit and it did exist in the cabinet office for a good five or six years which really tried to bring together um, evidence and analysis about future challenges and how government could deal with them beyond the life of a single parliament. I see that, um, that did not continue after 2018 and there's actually very little about the future challenges facing the country other than the national risk register. So I think there's plenty of scope uh, for a further debate about what needs to improve in this space. Thanks, Ina. Reese, is there anything you wanted to add on stewardship? Two very quick points. Um, one is that, we, as we talk about in the report, there's lots we can learn from elsewhere. So we took some inspiration from the New Zealand public service reforms when it comes to the stewardship. They enshrine that as a principle and effectively the equivalent of the civil service code. Um, and closer to home, Wales, the Welsh Government have just appointed the new Future Generations Commissioner, which is trying to do a similar thing in a different way, which I think is an interesting comparison. And lastly, um, one of the uh, sort of challenges we get when we talk about this uh, with people in, in and out of the Institute is um, questioning whether it challenges the principle of ministerial decision-making. And I think one thing it's important for us to make clear is we believe this is about strengthening ministerial decision-making, right, and making sure they have the available evidence there to, to sort of um, mitigate against some of those more short-term incentives that are mm -hmm. naturally at play. Brilliant. Thank you. Chris? Yeah, I think there is a value in, in, in horizontal scanning, but equally you have to be careful that this is not something the civil service is doing on its own in a corner with no political involvement. I mean, the classic example here is pandemic planning. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, I was reading the report on Operation Cygnus, which was the sort of pandemic exercise which was done, I think, in 2016, um, very much a sort of uh, official level exercise, which I don't think ministers were, you know, um, particularly thought was politically that important. And you, you're reading that and you think the main sort of learning and challenge that came out of it is like, where are we going to get enough body bags to sort of store all of the, all of the bodies? And, you know, the, the pandemic plans that we have then, and maybe even we want to come back on this, I don't think survive contact with political reality. It took five minutes for the politicians to think, maybe we just don't want hundreds of thousands of people to be dying in the streets. Can we have a new plan? So I think you need something to make politicians actually mm -hmm. engage with this, um, which is hard to do on a obviously five-year short-term cycle and indeed but there is in the report the suggestion of publishing advice to ministers and I think that could um, change political mm -hmm. incentives if they knew it was going to be out there I mean again to take an example entirely at random if uh, Jeremy Hunt had known you know 10 years ago that the advice he was getting as health secretary about where the NHS was going to be in 10 years time was out there as, as published <coughs> that might have affected how we behave now and it would certainly affect how politics plays out you know, today. Could not agree more. Sally, was there anything else you wanted to... Yeah, so I was... Um, it, it builds on Chris's point. So I think, for me, this isn't just about how the civil service can be that steward of long-term thinking, because all that I think really, really will do is just pitch civil servants against ministers who, for lots of different reasons, might want to take short-term decisions. I think it is looking about what are some of the other features that you might need. So... Where is that about publishing the advice? Uh, God, we said my immediate thought as a civil servant is, well, I, you know, the idea, uh, you know, it's fine that it gets published 30 years later, but the idea it might get published kind of in real time and people are checking my grammar, that's a bit worrying. Um, but I think what might the role, for example, be of select committees? Could, could select committees deliberately look at 
long-term policy mm -hmm. issues? Could they be looking at what's the capacity and capability to address those, as well as looking at specific yeah. the themes and issues? So mm -hmm. I think you can't just have it be that that's a civil service kind of requirement or code and they're the only people because it you need other parts of the kind of system yeah. to, to really kind of sit behind that being an important um, mm. part of how you govern for both your term but also setting the country on the right path in the long term. Mm. Brilliant, thank you. Okay, I'm going to go out to questions from the audience now. Um, again, if you're watching online, then please do um, send them in via Slido. Uh, for people in the room, we've got mics. Um, I'm going to take questions in groups of three. If you could uh, say who you are, which organisation you're from, um, if your question is for one panellist or for everyone, and please, could I ask that they are questions, not comments? So, who would like to ask something? Got one over here. One here and one here. Thank you, and thank you for excellent discussion. Uh, Charles Tilley, IRCC. Um, you've talked about all the great ideas about how things could be improved, uh, and in particular the stewardship uh, approach. Uh, how are you going to actually get um, government and ministers to uh, pick up these ideas and actually run with them? Thank you. How to get government to listen. And then we've got another one over here. Thank you. John Taysom from the Centre of Science and Policy at Cambridge. Um, it was fascinating. I've not seen this sort of presentation before. So thank you very much, first of all, for it. Um, the question I wanted to ask was, um, the uh, newspaper today is full of the Home Office um, being criticised for poorly uh, using personal data. Um, it's a major article in the FT today. And yet, at the same time, over the last three years, the NHS has developed what is truly a well-beating uh, capability to handle uh, patient data mm -hmm. um, in their trusted research environments. I think they call it DARS from memory. Um, so my question is, how does that kind of development, which is truly well-beating in the NHS, mm -hmm. uh, get picked up by other parts of uh, the civil service? Thank you. And then one more there. Andy Cowper from Health Policy Insight. What do the panel think are the possible consequences and lessons for civil servants of the current situation of the Department for Health but Social Care taking back control over the previously autonomous NHS England? Thank you very much. OK, I'm going to take them in um, backwards order. So, Sally, um, I wonder whether you want to take the question on NHS England. Um, Una, uh, perhaps you want to, uh, Una and Chris perhaps, on uh, the question on how you share, how you should share learning, um, perhaps, you know, looking particularly at data, um, and then Reese, how we get government to listen. I'm sure we've got some fantastic plans on that front. Sally, okay, we'll thank you. Uh, thanks for your question, Andy. So a few different um, kind of ways to look at that question of that challenge. The first thing to say is it's not quite as simple as saying NHS England was autonomous and now it's um, under uh, ministerial control because actually NHS England has itself had several different bodies merge into it and a lot of those bodies had a different relationship with the department and the department was able to direct them. So there was something about you had to tidy up what the relationships were. I think also the experience of the um, NHS England being autonomous uh, was never quite as clear as the legislation expected. The chief executive of mm -hmm. NHS England did spend most of his Mondays in a meeting with the Secretary of State about five or six issues. So it was a quite a close and collaborative relationship. Um, I think obviously one of the 
biggest differences by now. The government has taken these powers, and interestingly, during the process of the legislation, we kept saying, um, what is it that you can't, what is it that NHS England have refused to do that you need these powers to make them do? And that, that, there was never an, it was just, we, want, we might want them, we might need them in a future pandemic, we might need them. So a bit of a theoretical risk, but I think the biggest political thing is government has now taken back the NHS. So before it could say, we've given the NHS its funding, it's independently run, it's the responsibility mm -hmm. of Simon Stevens as Chief Executive of, of NHS England. Now, by bringing them back in-house, if you like, by saying we now can direct them. I think the political consequence of NHS performance is much stronger. People will argue, but actually, in reality, the public never saw that difference anyhow, uh, and I think that possibly is true. Um, I think a really key test for me will be the limits of that power of direction. Where is it about... Does it start to get into genuine day-to-day -day operational and clinical decisions? And that will be very, very challenging, not least because the department isn't set up to be able to do that. It doesn't have the capability uh, and it will start to really make staff in the NHS feel like their clinical judgment um, is being undermined. So I think the testing the parameters of it will be important. Sally, I also wanted your view actually on the question around kind of sharing best practice, you know, the contrast between the NHS um, doing such a fantastic job on, on patient data versus the Home Office, um, slightly poorer track record on them um, personal data. How do you uh, share learning across the public sector? Yeah, I think it is a real challenge and I think it's particularly a real challenge when systems are under a huge amount of pressure because actually it can feel, it can feel difficult enough to keep up with what's happening in health and care, to be honest, without even then thinking what are some innovations in the other four nations because we've got devolution in health and care and yet alone other sectors. So it is a real challenge. I think there are some really important bits about, so when I was a civil servant, I benefited a lot from training and development, uh, which meant I got to meet an awful lot of people from across Whitehall and kept those networks. So quite often it was as simple as picking up the phone to somebody and say, you know, we're, we're doing X in, uh, in the department. Have, have you got somebody I can speak to who's done similar in your process? So that kind of net personal network can be really important but that isn't a strong enough foundation to really share innovation so mm -hmm. particularly I think how are you using the civil service training uh, to help people know um, I, I think the data and digital is a real kind of risk and challenge for the civil service in terms of what's the capability and what's the understanding of the capability you need and how transformative it can be. Mm -hmm. um, so I think there is a real importance about how can you share those case studies, share the skills. Um, but as I say, relying on personal networks is one part of it, but it can't be the whole thing. Thank you. Una, is there anything you want to add on? Yeah, I'm particularly on that second question, uh, I'm not going to suggest for a moment everything is perfect in relation to healthcare data, but there is a long tail of work on the appropriate use and the permission infrastructure to use personal data and to anonymise the data to aggregate it for um, research and other purposes. So this has been a subject of deep care for many years and um, there is a proper framework um, under, underneath that, those apps and that research um, that uh, takes account of an ethical use of personal data. So I'm not saying it's perfect, but it has got a full sort of thought through policy infrastructure. I wonder really when I look at the report reason it's already a herculean effort what you've done so i'm not going to add to your list too much but there is a big question about the government's use the civil service use of personal data 
and how the, what is the permission infrastructure that sits around that? And where does that um, become visible to the public about whether or not my data is being used, is it being shared, uh, and so on. Now, there are a couple of interesting things that are going on that don't really give us an answer but open up some questions. Um, the first one is the infrastructure in the Cabinet Office has changed, so we now have a central data and digital office um, which is, is going to take responsibility for the strategy mm -hmm. rather and GDS will continue being the delivery body. So I think there's a scope there for more shared learning but also for greater clarity about the um, situation on personal data. And I think the other thing that's really interesting that comes through in your report is just where the skills are really building around digital and data in the civil service. The number of people compared with 10 years ago is virtually unrecognisable. So I think that offers a huge potential for a professional, um, coordinated approach, people working across the function rather than necessarily in departments. I'm sorry I haven't seen the report about the Home Office, and I'll be interested to, to look at that later. And then we've got the question about how to make government listen -reese. I mean, I think one way of thinking about it is lots of the challenges that we've identified in Whitehall Monitor, whether it's high levels of churn, um, you know, decreasing morale, um, a struggle with balancing the kind of long-term against short-term political imperatives. These are problems that everybody who works in the public sector, the civil service and indeed ministers have known about for a long time. Why are they things that governments struggle um, to, to grip and what can be done about it? Yeah, I mean, I suppose if I had a whole answer for that, I would have cracked think tanking, <laughs> wouldn't I? You might um, be the cabinet secretary. Uh, but uh, I think there's a couple of, of points here. One is that the civil service, people are interested in civil service reform, the civil service is in an interesting moment now and struggling between the sort of short and long term mm -hmm. because, uh, you know, we're staring down the last couple of years of the parliament and you've got the programme that was created off the back of the declaration on government reform, which is ongoing but it's slowed. So I think there's an interesting challenge of, of reformers trying to sort of work out what can be done in the short term on practical problems. And we cover in the report secondments on the development of the skills uh, uh, offer. Great work of the evaluation task force, for example, that it's like, what can be done progressing mandates that exist versus how uh, should the civil service be thinking about sort of more deep rooted uh, long term challenges and building the strategic case for future governments, whether those be, you know, refreshed Sunak or a Starmer-led administration around things like stewardship. Yeah. So I think identifying those sort of, you know, what are the more existential questions for a longer term build versus what should be ploughing on with now, that's a challenge for the civil service. Thank you. I'm going to take a few questions from our online audience now. Um, so the first one, is the focus to decentralise the civil service, moving bases out of London, the right aim, especially when ministers are not moving out of London? Um, do you think that ministers would trust the expertise of the civil service more if they didn't rotate departments so often? And how can you encourage more challenge within the civil service, particularly when the leadership of the civil service has not always been willing to challenge situations like Partygate, the scholar situation that you mentioned, um, Una, and bullying claims? Hmm. Who wants to start? I, mean, I could ask Please. about the point about moving people out of London. I mean, you know, not to sort of criticise the current programme, which is obviously very good in many ways, but I think that question gets to the heart of it. Ultimately, in a, a system that is answerable to ministers, the centre is going to be where ministers are, and I don't think you can get away from the fact that if ministers are in, in London, the centre of gravity is always going to be in London. And perhaps a sort of different way of looking at this is to try and 
make the civil service a bit more porous towards both the devolved administrations, the sort of city um, city deals that are mm. happening, so that people can have do interesting things outside of London. I feel like they're at the centre of something interesting and important mm -hmm. without having to sort of refer to London all the time, and perhaps um, not only be able to build their careers outside London, but also actually do something different that may give London some more interesting ideas about how central government can be run and I think that is probably a better way of changing the culture of anything else than just sort of plonking an office down in Wolverhampton or Thank you, Sally. Do you want to pick up the uh, the question of turnover and whether if it didn't happen so much? Yeah. Um, so um, I wasn't sure if the question was the turnover of ministers or the turnover of civil servants. <laughs> I, think I think the both turnover could be true. Yeah, very true. I think the turnover of civil servants. So if they stayed in you know one place, built up expertise in particular areas, would that change how ministers took on the advice? Um, so to be honest, I think it would depend on the minister, wouldn't it? So quite a lot of this is personal. So you could see some ministers saying, well, you would say that because you've basically, you've become that sector now. You're just, you, you know, you're speaking on the sector's behalf. You've not, there's no new challenge here. There's no new thinking. So I, I personally think the key is to have a balance in a team, kind of where have you got people who understand the sector, understand history, so you're not repeating past policy initiatives without at least recognising you're doing that and learning from what went wrong before. But also where can you bring challenge, new ways of thinking, some insights from different sectors that might help you come up with solutions. So for me, it's balance. Mm -hmm. We've certainly had examples of um, almost, if you like, completely new teams. And I think particularly during Brexit and the pandemic, the speed at which kind of for some functions had to expand meant you just didn't have enough expertise and they were building that as they went. And that did mean there was real challenge about kind of how quickly can you give really top class advice to ministers when you're kind of learning and doing all at the same time. But as I say, I do, th I can see some of the ministers I used to work with, I think would also find it quite galling to be kind of told, oh, well, we did that 10 years ago, or we did that eight years ago, or all the sector say this, that and the other. So for me, it's, it's balance, I think, that's the most important bit. And if you can't get balance within the team, how are you getting that from the stakeholders you're talking to yeah. from citizen engagement in, in policy making. So there are there's ways to bring that openness about policy making and challenge and insight that might be about team composition, but it equally could be about how are you going about the process of thinking about a policy area. Thank you. Rhys, did you want to come in on the turnover point? Uh, well, I totally agree with what I said. And just to say, um, uh, to plug our Ministers Reflect archive, <laughs> because there's great quotes on there of ministers reflecting on cases where they're having conversations and realise halfway through that actually they have more experience than the team of, of civil servants in the room. So I definitely think that's, that's um, you know, it can happen. And it's, it's, it's an interesting challenge. And also, just to come briefly in on the challenge point, um, uh, Chris, you mentioned the part in the report about the publication of advice. Certainly that was part of the thinking in uh, building the case for publishing more analysis is that it kind of creates a default way of getting that air into the system. And my background before joining the Institute was in local government. And you know, even if we maintained the private advice setting, we knew that cabinet papers would be published and have our names on it and telephone number. And, and it does just kind of sort of give that push to make sure the analysis is, is as um, robust as it might be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just want to add on the point of um, policy advice in London or outside London. Look, I think we just need to completely get over this. It's ridiculous that uh, we're in a position where, and the report I think shows it very well, just how sticky the policy official presence is with being located in London. When we relocated a third of the Department of Health to Leeds, believe it or not, in 1992, 
It didn't work because we had rubbish video technology and you had to book a video suite and you had to walk down four flights of stairs and, you know, it was very, very clunky and difficult to operationalise. Now, post-COVID, that's just not acceptable. We've got a situation where ministers are now having meetings online with officials at home in their homes in London. I mean, it's ridiculous. So it ought to be possible for policy officials to be based elsewhere in the country. But if I could just say, because I'm passionate about this, it's not only possible, it is imperative because the experience of living and working in communities in different parts, particularly of England, is very diverse. And I think the idea that somehow we can work it all out intellectually if we're based in London is wrong. Um, so as a, as a native Brummie, I'm a huge supporter of getting civil service jobs at all levels all over the country. We've got a fabulous treasury unit now in Darlington, and I think they're showing a way for, for next generation. So I, I hope you can track that, actually, as the churn happens in a geographical terms, what's actually mm. happening. I think that would be great. Thanks, Ina. Right, I think we've got time for two more questions in the room, so um, let's make them good ones. Got one here <laughs> and one here. Pressure. No pressure. Uh, I think I'll go back to my first, which is I've... Sorry, could you say um, your name and which... Oh, sorry, my name is Jacqueline Castles. Um, I've been concerned recently as what I see as ministers impinging very much on the civil service and not keeping that demarcation. But that, of course, takes me on to the idea of contamination in a general psychological and philosophical sense, that two people cannot work together and not be changed by each other. So I would like, actually, you know, to pick up, Luna, in particular, the question of what do civil servants do, but also how do you restrain ministers, ministers who are overstepping and impinging on the role? Thank you. Come on ahead. This last, last question, so lots of pressure. <laughs> um, Sorry, who's the name? And My name is Jack Aldane. I'm the senior writer at Global Government Forum. Thank you. I suppose I, my question is really related to uh, uh, previous events, not here but elsewhere, where uh, Jonathan Slater and Philip Rycroft gave accounts of their time in the civil service. My question, to give it some context, is to do with what Jonathan said and then afterwards what Philip said. Jonathan was talking about how if civil servants are in closed-door meetings with ministers writing stuff that isn't going to be published in 20 years and they know it, um, isn't it going to produce civil servants who essentially aren't thinking about the long term of their actions but rather just what their ministers want and then giving it to them duly? And Philip Rycroft followed this up by saying that uh, he thinks it would be a good idea if civil servants were held more publicly account, uh, to account sorry, for the quality of advice they give. My, my question is simply, do you think that's a good idea? Would that improve morale or would it have quite the opposite effect? Brilliant. Thank you. Um, Ina, is there anything you want to come back on, back to mm. on, um, the relationship between uh, civil servants and ministers? Well, it's a question for, for, our, for our time, isn't it? Um, Andrew Kakabadze, who's a professor at Henley Business School, did a fascinating uh, piece of work, which is published, actually, by the... Um, no, it's not the Public Accounts Committee, it's the, uh, the William Rag Committee, mm -hmm. um, on, on ver this very thing. He went round and interviewed a cross-section of secretaries of state and of senior civil servants about the, the dynamic of the relationship. 
So it's a poorly researched area. It's not really understood. I think, as Sally's been saying, um, more generally between ministers and officials, it's very much a, a personal one in terms of being able to communicate effectively, to being able to listen and to understand their, our respective roles. In my, in my book, it's very clear that ministers are, are publicly accountable. Their job is to set direction. And the job of civil servants is to advise and to um, implement the priorities of the government of the day. And that, how that relationship is navigated um, is the responsibility of the leadership within the department. When things get awkward um, and things that Mark is overstepped, or if there are shortcomings, the senior people need to be able to have open conversations with ministers about that. And that, that is what historically has happened and should continue to happen. Um, and the, the second point is that I would just say the findings in the report about FOI are very depressing. Because you look for, I mean, of course, I can say this now, I'm not a civil servant anymore. I'm a passionate fan of FOI. But actually, only four in ten of the requests are fully fulfilled. And this is, says something wider about the state of transparency. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure where I am at the moment about all advice being published. I certainly would be in favour of much greater transparency. And I think when I look at what I was seeing in government and how hard it is to get hold of things as an outsider... <laughs> There's a huge amount of stuff that is non-controversial that ought to be made more <coughs> accessible. And I think it would engage people more in some of the conundrums of, of what ministers and officials are dealing with who could be more open about it. So uh, that's a really, really exciting and potentially new arena for politicians and civil servants to get into. Thank you. Reese, any final no, no. And um, Sally, Chris, should civil service advice be published? Uh, in real time. Yeah. So um, I'm also not a bit with you know, I'm not completely sure what I think about it, partly because I worry it changes the dynamic in an unhelpful way between mm. civil servants and ministers. Because actually, if we think about the role of the civil service is to give honest and frank advice about long term implications, about the policy choices, but it is also to help ministers grapple with really difficult. So all governments have to make priority decisions. No government can do everything they want to do as quickly as they want to do it. So I think there's, for me, there's something about if you're saying publish it, it feels a bit kind of two sides of an argument, whereas I'd much rather see much more transparency about really good quality impact assessments, really good quality descriptions as to why you've made the choice you have. And actually, that's the kind of stuff that I feel like we don't have anymore. And it, we've kind of even got to a point quite often now, announcements are made by press releases and the report doesn't come out for about 20 hours after the press release where it, or the coverage has already happened. When you read the document... It's not quite the same as you thought from the press release uh, it would be. So I just think good quality policy documents backed up by data and evidence that's showing you understand the impact, mm -hmm. explaining why you've made the kind of choices you need to make. Because I do think sometimes we can talk in a world where, as if we pretend there aren't really hard choices, governing is really, really hard. Without a pandemic, without war, it's hard anyhow. So I, my worry would be publishing the advice just makes it harder by creating a bit more of a sense of us and them again. And we, we want it to be a bit more of a collaborative. We, we each have different roles to bring to that decision-making table. I think that you know, there is a valid distinction there between the sort of frank advice and the work on which that advice is based on. And I think, you know, the latter, I mean, obviously I'm biased here, but I definitely think it should be published. I think for several reasons, as I said, it changes 
the incentives, mm. I think it also produces more rigorous work. I mean, mm -hmm. if you're, you know your work is going to be checked, you know, you're, you're, you're more careful about it. I mean, the whole of academia is based on that, that principle, and it would be strange if, if that was not the case in server service. And I think they, the thirdly is it, it does make those trade-offs more explicit. I mean, we saw this interesting in the pandemic when Sage published all of their stuff, and there was a bit of a fuss about that, but after a while, people, it was fine. And some, sometimes people challenged the basis on which they were doing it, and that was helpful. But obviously, other bits of government didn't do that, and it became a slightly unbalanced conversation. Whereas if you could see, well, on the, there's this piece of advice saying this, this piece of this saying this, you can see this is not easy in some of those decisions that they come to. There are reasons for them. And I think the current prime minister, insofar as he has a governing philosophy, it is about accepting trade-offs. Mm -hmm. And I think you know, he would be quite a good person to, to, to do this, or I'm not holding my breath. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you, Chris. And on that note, I think that's all oh, we've got time over. In fact, we've already um, run a few minutes over. Thank you to Rita and the whole panel for a brilliant discussion of issues that are going to um, shape the year for the civil service. And please do all log on to our website uh, to read the full report. And um, the live stream of this event will be available in a few days' time. Um, thank you to our brilliant panel. And thank you to all of you for your excellent questions and for taking part. Thanks. Thanks.